Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, producer at Intelligence Squared. Intelligence Squared is very excited to announce this week our newly launched podcast, How I Found My Voice, which is hosted by the BBC's Samira Ahmed. It's a podcast that explores how some of the world's greatest artists and thinkers become such compelling and unique communicators. Guests will include Catherine Ryan, Rose McGowan, Adam Buxton and Philip Pullman. Before we get to this week's episode, here's a quick trailer. When you see your favourite artist, politician or writer, do you ever wonder what shaped what they had to say and how they say it? Tune into How I Found My Voice, a new podcast by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and each week we'll go behind the celebrity to explore how they came to find their voice. From podcaster Adam Buxton to the novelist Alif Shafak and poet Benjamin Zephaniah. So we'd just sit around and the impressions would just devolve into and was and was and was and was and this is David Bowie putting on his shoes and was and was this is David Bowie opening a door and was. Yeah, I think at some point my mother was worried about my sanity because I was constantly talking to imaginary <laughs> beings, but also like apologizing to objects when I bumped into them. I said, I want to be a poet. And he turned around and he said something like, A poet? Have you ever seen a poet skin a rabbit? And from Hollywood actress Rose McGowan to comedian Catherine Ryan, we'll speak to extraordinary people about their journeys and perhaps along the way we'll pick up some insights for ourselves. It's hard to go against the grain. It's very hard to use your voice in opposition to injustice because injustice wants to stand. Women, we were told to be invisible. If you want to do this man's job, try to make it not so obvious that you are a lady. This is divide and rule, let's unite. I used to have a poem that used to go, if you get uptight and you want to fight, fight them, not me. If you check out the scene and things don't right, see them, not me. I came, I saw, I live here, and I have my tribulation to bear. If you're getting uptight and you really want to fight, fight them, not me. Launching on March the 18th, Join us by subscribing to How I Found My Voice on Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And this week's episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast is a special episode brought to you from Berlin in partnership with the European Council on Foreign Relations. It was a debate that we staged there on the motion, Nationalism is a Delusion. Our futures depend on ever closer union. So it was a debate on the future of the EU. In the chair, we had Josef Janning of the European Council on Foreign Relations. And speaking for the motion, we had Radek Sikorski, the former foreign minister of Poland. Alongside him, we had Flavia Kleiner, the Swiss political activist. And speaking against them was Douglas Murray, the British journalist and author. And Alexander Rabinska, 
the German-Polish political scientist. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Thank you very much, Melissa. A very warm welcome to all of you who have come here tonight to discuss with us. You see up there uh, the motion. Nationalism is a delusion. No? Our future depend, uh, futures depend on ever closer union. Now, union, uh, nation, you have two rather colorful terms, uh, concepts actually, that can be many things. Um, and many things to many people can be seen as contradictory and as complementary. And what is special about them and what is their significance in our time? I hope that we will discuss that uh, tonight with the help uh, of our four speakers. So our first speaker in favor of the motion is Radek uh, Sikorsky, um, known, I think, uh, the world over, particularly in Berlin. Uh, for uh, a number of the remarkable things he has said as, uh, as a foreign minister mostly, uh, but he's also uh, a commentator, a journalist, a thinker, an author, a politician. Right. Please, the floor is yours. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. It's always a delight uh, to be in Berlin. Um, it brings back memories. Uh, in November 1989, not everybody remembers that when the Berlin Wall started falling, Chancellor Kohl was actually in Poland. And I was a hack for the Sunday Telegraph. And we didn't have a story. So um, with an American uh, journalist for The Economist, uh, we just drove here to Berlin and through Checkpoint Charlie, we climbed on the wall with everybody else. Well, that American journalist uh, was called Anne Applebaum, and we've been married for 30 years now. Um, Berlin also brings back memories. Thank you for reminding me of my um, speech in which I said that uh, I fear... Um, uh, the, uh, I may be the first Polish foreign minister in history to say it, but I'll say it anyway. I fear German power less than I fear German uh, inactivity, which on return, um, on return to Warsaw earned me the denunciation as a traitor and a motion for dismissal, which we comfortably defeated. Um, but Berlin is also a good place to discuss nationalism because, of course, this is a city where you can still see the scars of wars uh, caused by nationalism. Uh, and, um, and therefore, it's a little odd to formulate the motion that nationalism is a delusion because you can see the physical uh, effects of nationalism. And therefore, I think we need to qualify this. Nationalism uh, is not a delusion, but it's different from patriotism. I would define patriotism as loving your country and nationalism as thinking that your nation is better than others and is therefore entitled to some special treatment, a sphere of influence or, or some privileges. And then nationalism is a delusion. I think uh, historically, nationalists also believe that the nation is the highest authority, the highest point of loyalty, and there can be no higher one, which I think is historically misguided because humanity has had a tendency to aggregate into ever bigger uh, groups from uh, simple hunter-gatherers through tribes, through nations, and there is no reason to think that that has stopped. Um, uh, today's European nations were once tribe, the tribes. They were different 2,000 years ago. And we also meet us at a special time when one of our members of the European Union 
um, will perhaps in two weeks' time no longer be, be living under the Brussels yoke, will at last be free from the impositions of faceless Brussels elites and will be able to set its own rules. In other words, will leave. We'll say because of immigration, because of sovereignty, and because of the rejection of ever closer u union, Britain uh, is leaving because it wants take, to take back control and set its own rules. And I think this is a very useful experiment and a, and a great service that Britain is going to do to us. Because if they succeed, we will probably follow them. And if they fail they can reapply in 20 years' time. Um, I would like to convince you that uh, ever closer union is the way to go because we should draw some lessons from the, from the Brexit experience. Uh, is Brexit the effect, of too much, the effect of too much EU? Shouldn't we push any further, as AKK has just said, or, or, or should we have more EU, as President Macron has uh, argued? Well, I'm with Macron on this because I think Europe is not just about peace. It's also about power. Uh, we, we have a time in which the United States is threatening us with sanctions. The IMF treaty has just been abrogated and Russia is uh, planting uh, nuclear missiles in Kaliningrad. Uh, Chinese, the, the Chinese are stealing our technologies and already uh, experimenting with Orwellian control of their own society. Tax havens have accumulated $30 trillion. Climate change, mass migration. Does anybody think that we can deal with these issues on a national level? Is any single European country, even as powerful and rich one as Germany, capable of dealing with this? I don't think so. Um, and... Um, if we are not to be at the mercy of Mr. Trump's trade uh, sanctions or Putin's missiles, if we don't want to be data fodder for tech companies who invade our privacy but don't even want to pay taxes here, um, uh, we need to stick together because the European Commission represents our interests rather well. But for, the, for Europe to survive, it cannot stand still. There is a constitutional reason for this. I've done a um, study of confederations in history with my students at Harvard. And it turns out that although Switzerland is called a confederation, it's actually a federation, and that the European Union is the only existing confederation. All of the ones in the past either morphed into federations or collapsed. And there's a reason for that. Because... If sovereignty ultimately lies in the member states and um, respecting treaties is ultimately up to the goodwill of the member states, members inevitably cheat. So the problem with, and, and that's the, the reason we had the euro crisis and the reason we had the Schengen migration crisis was the, that members did not abide by the rules. In other words, the reason is the exact opposite of what Euroskeptics would have you not enough central coordination. And if we don't have enough central coordination, the project will eventually collapse. Um, we need greater coordination in some uh, areas for Europe to be able to survive. That, the, the question is this. Are we going to be rule setters in the world or rule takers? And um, 
I put to you that if we want to be a, uh, a serious group of nations, a serious continent, we should follow what a British prime minister, who is right now trying to prevent his people from lurching into the abyss, proposed. The EU should not be a super state, but it should be a superpower. The alternative is that we become an old people's home and a tourist theme park. That I would like to prevent. Therefore, I propose we should choose ever closer union. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, our next, our second speaker will be a speaker against the motion, Alexandra Ribinska, a political scientist and journalist, uh, active also in the Stiftung Deutsch-Polnische Zusammenarbeit, the German-Polish uh, Foundation for Cooperation, uh, and, and a frequent guest uh, also on German media explaining um, things, all things Polish, uh, with a lot of emphasis also on German-Polish relations and Europe. Uh, Alexandra, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, obviously, as I'm on the other side, so um, I will not agree with uh, Radek Sikorski here. Um, well, I thought a long time about the main question here. Nationalism, is it a delusion? Um, I believe it is not a delusion. What is a delusion is a never closer union. Um, first of all, um, because it only exists in the heads of those um, that propose it, um, and is largely detached from the reality, especially the reality that we're seeing for the last couple of years. Um, the tendency is a completely opposite one. Um, so um, ever closer union is not possible um, at this precise moment. But I would like to start with the question of nationalism, because we just heard um, that nationalism is a uh, something negative opposed to patriotism, which is a positive feeling of uh, being attached to one's uh, nation. I think of nationalism not as um, something negative, but something positive. But simply, nationalism is nothing more than a feeling of unity with a group beyond one's immediate family and friends. And in everyday life, we love our family, we love our friends. That doesn't mean that we hate other families. Therefore, nationalism doesn't mean um, that we are against others. And um, this doesn't, not, does not make us believe that um, everybody else poses uh, a threat. It does not manufacture hatred for others, uh, just concern for one's fellow citizens. Um, by believing that everyone is a national endeavor together, citizens value each other's welfare as well as their own. And at the core of nationals, there are two tenets. First, members of the nation understood as a group of equal citizens with a shared history and future political destiny should rule the state. And second of all, they should do so in the interest of the nation. So national is essentially opposed to foreign rules, uh, rule as you would see that in colonial uh, empires. And it's simply the national glue, um, the bonding agent that creates political communities by which we organize the modern world, what brought us together and what keeps us together. And I do not agree that nation states have brought along the great wars. It was empires or imperial ambitions of nation states. So this is essentially not true. And I would also like to remind everyone that the nation-state gave birth to democracy. Uh, empires were essentially not democratic. And I have read an interesting article in The Guardian where uh, Rana Dasgupta wrote, um, empires were not democratic, but that's not a problem because they were inclusive. 
um, of everybody they love. Well, to me, that is an issue. And um, I think that the nation state is connected very strongly with democ democracy. And um, I remember a French philosopher and sociologist, Pierre Manin, actually he argues in his book, A World Beyond Politics, that we live in a grip of a great illusion about politics. It's the illusion that we'd be better off without it, especially national politics, perhaps all politics. It is a fantasy that if democratic values could somehow detach themselves from the nation state, um, from the national context, we would enter a world of pure democracy. A human society would be ruled only according to law and morality. Borders would just dissolve, and we would live um, international and everlasting happiness in organizations such as the European Union. And he argues um, that this is false because the political order is key to the human order and human life in order to have force and meaning must be concentrated in a particular political community in which decisions are made through collective creative debate and the best such community for democratic life is still the nation state in short democracy can only be possible with a nation states the only form of political community that can merge civilization with liberty. And now what we have, when we look at the European Union, we have an endless expansion um, justified by the flawed idea that only universal actions are legitimate and moral. So any action that basically separates right, and differentiates between individuals is hateful and repulsive. Um, but as I already said, democracy arose through nation states. So now Europeans have a massive bureaucracy insulated from any accountability. It's Kafkaesque in its impenetrability, and self-government gives way to some kind of new enlightened despotism, the sum of agencies, administrations, courts of justice, commissions that lay down the rule on the law, um, for us more and more meticulously. Um, so we could call it a shift from sovereign state to the transnational abstraction, because that is what it essentially is. And now, in order for societies to function, they need a shared identity. A shared identity is key to the welfare state. Remember, if you don't feel a shared identity with your fellow citizens, there's no reason for you to go to work every day and give away part of your money for their pensions. So, um, no such thing as a European identity has been created to date, as far as I know. So we are left with the national identities um, that we have. So I find the bicycle idiom, I think it was Jacques Delors, the bicycle has to keep on rolling, otherwise it will fall over. Well, I think if it continues rolling like this, it will fall into the abyss. Because sometimes it's good to stop. And I think we've come to the point where Europe is in a deep crisis. And Europe was a model of success, I will admit that, for a very long time. But I think the financial crisis in 2008 and the immigration crisis in 2015 changed that. There's a feeling of uh, loss of control. And the second thing is as a loss of prosperity. Suddenly, people have the impression that was what was promised to them, that it will be better every day, the machine is going forward, we have a constant progress. This is not happening anymore. And so, um, people, that's the yellow vest protest, that's where they come from. And the second thing is, I think that uh, decades of uh, left-wing identity politics has come to its natural end, which is catering to minorities uh, and so on. And when you listen to what the Yellow Vest protesters say, they say, we are the forgotten. They forgot about us. We're not minorities. Uh, we don't live a cosmopolitan lifestyle. Our life is our town and a 40-kilometer radius around it. 
never ever been on a plane, one of them said. So there's a feeling of detachment from the European elites, which are cosmopolitan, and they don't understand those that live in their small towns and have forgotten about them long. They're not making any politics for them anymore. So I think um, in this crisis, while we're going through it, it's maybe time to stop the machine to think and think about changing things, think about reform. So um, the loss of trust is something that will be very hard to repair. And this loss of trust makes it very difficult now to convince people uh, to Europe. And uh, when I listen to Emmanuel Macron, the French president, because he was mentioned, um, I have the impression that the European leaders have learned nothing from their mistakes. What you hear is arrogance, calling those that are opposed to um, whatever policies President Macron is serving um, the brown pestilence. I think with um, insulting people, I don't think we will get very far. So um, what I see is a Europe that is deeply in crisis, um, a Europe that has stopped um, developing any grand ideas about a decade ago, and that saves itself from one summit to the next, pushing problems from one summit to the next. And I don't think it is the realistic to say we can have now an ever closer uh, union. So I think the European Union should reform and concentrate on what it, it does best. And that is for now the single market. Thank you very much. Thank you. Flavia Kleiner is, is an exceptional uh, a young woman, I, I, I dare to say that, because she has founded uh, with a, a number of friends uh, a rather remarkable NGO called Operation Libero, um, an organization that engages um, basically week in, week out uh, in direct democracy in Switzerland. Flavia, for the motion, uh, the floor is yours. So good evening, everybody. We heard that national sovereignty and political participation are a great topic in these days. As the EU is organized today, it is not democratic enough, some people say. And basically, I share this assessment, I have to say. I come, as it was said, from Switzerland, which is a country where political participation, direct democracy are very important. I'm a big fan of direct democracy as well. And I believe that this system demands perceptiveness of politicians, which is by all means super important. Over the last 25 years, we had numerous referendas and popular initiatives on our bilateral relationship with the European Union. The nationalist forces, which are uh, represented by a party called SVP, Swiss People's Party, um, have almost always lost these referendums. And in the direct democratic votes in Switzerland, the voters are asked, and that's super important for my point, specific questions. So people are asked whether they agree on one thing or not, and they are asked to judge whether this would have a good or a bad effect on the bigger picture. I want to give you an example on this. Last November, we voted in a direct democratic vote on the so-called self-determination initiative, in which the Swiss Populist Party, the SVP, aims to place Swiss legislation 
over international legislation. In essence, it was a Switzerland first vote, right? And the vote could actually even result in Switzerland's withdrawal from the European Human Rights Convention, just to give you some context. And the SVP nourished for about 20 years the mistrust against grown institutions such as rule of law and international law. Especially human rights have been considered as some elite thing, some obstacle to overcome. And rather than acknowledging the fact that international law enhances individual liberties precisely because it enables a small country like Switzerland to make contracts on an eye-to-eye basis with other partners and not being crushed in the power play of more powerful countries, the SVP frames international law as something that limits the individual rights and the sovereignty of Switzerland. Interesting to me is this, how the vote, how the SVP interprets the concept of self-determination. That's what we could clearly see at this vote. It didn't interpret it as a self-determination of each individual about itself, but as a determination of the majority over the individual. So the SVP has pretended that state sovereignty is some kind of a human right. But the simple fact that the SVP would have accepted Switzerland's withdrawal from the European Convention on Human Rights or had severely weakened Switzerland as a trading partner and thus our prosperity, it is clear to me that it would have weakened individual self-determination. And this is a typical trick that you could see with right-wing populists. This can be observed also elsewhere. To pretend that self-determination will favor the right of the individual, but it will not. And yes, just to be complete, this vote was refused by the Swiss population by 66% in the end. And um, not one of the single cantons, which is like our state, um, was in favor of it. So I think this is an example that shows very well where the problem lies here and also to our debate. Because basically, we have to ask ourselves here, what is the goal of politics, what is the goal of organizing a community? As we hear from Ms. Rubinska, the goal of a national community is national sovereignty. Personally, I would strongly argue for putting the individual, its well-being and its dignity at the center of all political efforts. All questions that follow must be based on this requirement and must be derived from it. That would also mean that national sovereignty must be something that pays off for people. The moment when insisting on national sovereignty, such as insisting on a closed internal market, actually means losing jobs, actually means tearing apart families, as it happens with Brexit. Well, what do you think? Will this new sovereignty of United Kingdom pay off for the individual citizen? I mean, as a political concept, this national sovereignty sounds super interesting. And we also know as a political campaign hit word, it works perfectly fine. But, I mean, you cannot eat sovereignty, you cannot live in it. It is a means to an end. And it has a certain value, yes, 
but actually only a certain value. And from my point of view, to live political responsibility would mean to quantify this value as exactly as possible and then compellingly placing it in relation to other maxims and the interests of a community. Exactly this balancing of interests and values took place in the vote on the self-determination initiative in Switzerland. This balancing of interest values has not taken place, in my opinion, in the vote on Brexit. I understand the EU as an attempt to create the necessary institutions to secure the well-being of individuals. And it is precisely the liberal institutions, the rule of law, human rights and the separation of powers that secure individual freedom. The European Union upholds this and is increasingly reacting on attacks on it. And I think that's pretty right. An example of this is the Article 7 procedure, which is currently running against Poland and Hungary. And this ought not to be seen as some kind of an attack on the governments of the respective countries, but as an effort of the EU for the protection of individuals. So what does that mean for the future of the ever closer union, if we are inward looking? The EU creates the framework for its citizens to grow closer together. It reduces barriers to family life and to economic life of its citizens. That does not mean that it is a union that is created to curb more and more power to Brussels. And as a liberal, I can tell you I am skeptical of any concentration of power. But as I said, my purpose is the well-being of individuals in Europe. And if I see that the ever-closer union does that, then I'm in favor of it. Switzerland has lived through this process for centuries, but never to the point where cantons and communities have disbanded or become redundant. I would very much like to think with you of a, or how the European democracy could be shaped. And my first tip would be ask people specific questions, not all or nothing questions. And then what does that mean for the ever closer union if you're outward looking? Well, this brings us to the question of what does European sovereignty mean? Let's be honest, the UK alone will be much weaker vis-à-vis -vis the US, vis-à-vis -vis China, Russia and the EU. The only country that realizes this very well at the moment and that, has also, and that also knows how to use it for itself is Russia. In the future, the EU, the former Peace and Freedom Project, and here I go with Radek Sikorsky, will more likely grow into not only a democracy project, but also a power project. The current debates weaken us more internally than they strengthen us to the outside, which would be urgently needed. Therefore, of course, there is room for improvement, and there will always be, hopefully, which would be urgent. And, but the, the direction, I think, is good. And the institutions that guarantee our freedom must be defended generation by generation. I see many young people here in the room, so I talk to you. I get to my final point. I hope we can uh, take, use the energy that we're now spending on critical debates on the European Union, on the vision and the future of the European Union. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thank you, Flavia. And we're getting to the second speaker uh, against the motion. Um, Douglas Murray is a is a uh, an Sorry, author, yeah. journalist, and uh, in, in this book also in his books treats uh, the issues that that are at stake uh, tonight. He's also on the side an associate editor as at the Spectator, um, a conservative. I can think that. One can say that. Not a party member. No, not a party member, no, a, but a conservative um, a journal, uh, yeah. a weekly journal. He uh, wears the honorary title of a Brexiteer. Vaguely. Uh, yes, vaguely, okay. Um, Flavia already sort of introduced uh, the topic, so to, to give you um, a bit of a pretext to, to also uh, touch upon that. Uh, Douglas, the floor is yours. Against the Thank motion, eight minutes plus one. Well, thank you very much, uh, and apologies for my caveats. Um, it's a great pleasure to be back in Berlin, although if I'd uh, known I was going to hear this much criticism of Brexit, I'd have stayed in London. Um, it's um, a fascinating uh, uh, emotion, and I don't envy uh, uh, those who are trying to propose it, because to claim that nationalism isn't just something you personally don't feel that strongly. I could go along with that myself. I think quite a lot of people could. Um, but claim it's a delusion. Claim, I think the Oxford English Dictionary says that something that's a delusion is something so idiosyncratic as a belief that it's, it amounts to a mental disorder. I, I envy the other side of having the confidence to argue that so many of our fellow citizens across Europe are suffering from this terrible mental disorder. But I wouldn't try to woo them uh, with that argument myself. If nationalism is indeed a delusion, let's get right to the heart of it. Who is it a delusion for? Are there people for whom it isn't a delusion? 
Is nationalism a delusion when it is felt or expressed in the continent of the Americas? Is it a delusion when it's expressed across nations in Africa, in the Middle East? Is it a, is it a delusion when people are nationalists in Israel? I think most people would probably think not. What it is, let's boil it right down, nationalism is thought by a lot of people to be a delusion because it is bad for Europeans because Europeans can't cope with it. Let's boil that down a bit further. The real suspicion isn't just that Europeans can't deal with it, it's that Germans can't deal with it. Now, that may be true. <laughs> that may be true. I'm a guest in your country and I wouldn't like to suggest whether it is or isn't. But that gets right to the core of it, doesn't it? Radek Sikorsky quite rightly pointed out in his opening remarks some of the facts about the city we're in. But the claim that nationalism is the cause of the wreckage that we saw in our continent in the last century, I think is itself a very great delusion. The wars of the 20th century were caused in the first case by German militarism and the second by the rise of national socialism. Can nationalism go bad? Obviously. Tell me something that can't. Tell me something that can't. To claim that nationalism causes wars is an extraordinary reductio ad absurdum. Because it relies on the nation, the idea that without nation states, we don't have wars. If we only got rid of all the nation states, we wouldn't have all those wars again. There are so many misapprehensions in this idea. Before our continent was racked by the wars of nation-states, this continent was racked by the wars of religion. Something I sometimes see little sparks of returning. But nobody would suggest that to stop the problems that religion creates, we must destroy all religion and say that all religion is a delusion. And if we could only persuade everybody who was religious that they were suffering from a delusion, we would have no more war. Try another one. The Trojan Wars started by love. Love can cause wars. What do we do? Is it a delusion? Can we eat it? No, you're right, we can't. It's there. We've got to find some attitude towards it. It's another thing that you can manipulate and misuse and cause people hell over. Sure, just like nationalism, just like so many other things we could point to. Look, as... One of the most interesting recent additions to the many, many books and writings on this subject is a brilliant uh, uh, Israeli writer uh, called Yoram Hazoni, who recently published a book called The Virtue of Nationalism. It's a very challenging book. I really recommend it. I found it enormously stimulating. And he says in that there is only one alternative to nationalism, which was something he grew up thinking of as a perfectly good term, unlike, I think, most of us in Europe. He said the only answer to uh, uh, nationalism, the only alternative is empirism. Well, obviously that's been tried in recent decades. To some extent, I don't claim that Brussels is some kind of gulag or anything. And, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's take the argument at its, most, at its most real, okay? But it is an attempt to do away with the nation states and replace them with something like an empire. And we should survey honestly where that got us, where that has got us. I cannot believe, as somebody who voted for Brexit, we have in Britain flayed our political class since the uh, referendum, you may have noticed. And in Brussels, no change. 
You lose one of the biggest contributors, European Commission. No change. Why would they need to lose? Why would they need to change anything? Okay, so it's just those crazy Brits. It's these crazy Brits who vote. We get given two choices on the ballot, but we choose the wrong one. And so we can be called racists and nationalists and populists when actually it's just some things that are popular can get renamed populist. And on and on the insult of the British people, fine. And then it's other people. It's those crazy Eastern Europeans. It's the V4. It's all those people there. And then... It's the Italians. And where does this stop before we can have some self-reflection and some self-criticism about this whole thing? My suggestion isn't that this whole thing should fall apart. I don't want it to fall apart. But if you don't want the EU to fall apart, why not consider that what the people keep on trying to do at election after election and referendum after referendum in country after country is just to say, slow it down. Slow it down a bit. Why ever close to union? Why, why not union up until the point that the publics are starting to get nervous? How about that? Union up until the point that it becomes anti-democratic and you're working against the people instead of for them. Why not union up until that point? Up until the point the public aren't with you anymore. But no, we see endlessly again and again the doubling down doubling down on the insults, the doubling down on the attacks on the general public for getting it wrong. It's amazing, now I think of it, how our elected politicians have put up with us, us public, all this time. We have so many of the wrong views, so many of the wrong sentiments. Look, you may be more or less nationalist yourself. I don't regard myself as being particularly nationalist. You may be more or less nationalist yourself, but to claim that nationalism is a delusion, a mental disorder, is itself just deluded. It's something that people do to dismiss people who just think differently from them. And some people could win that. You could win in pretending that nation states don't exist. You could demoralize people enough about that. You could tell them enough slightly changed facts about their past and different interpretations of their past. You may, you may win that argument to claim that nationalism is a delusion, but I don't think anyone will be able to win that argument democratically in Europe, which brings us on to another problem. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to all of the um, four speakers. Um, I think the point has been made clear. Uh, the uh, results of the vote, yes, supporting the motion, uh, were 68%. No, against the motion were 19% before we heard the four speakers. Undecided were 13%. No? So you see, this is where you stand uh, at this moment. Uh, with this, we go into the Q&A session. Anybody wants to kick us off? Hello, Shoot. my name is Hella Dietz. I have a question for Douglas Murray. And I got a bit nervous by your sentence saying that uh, the union should uh, go up until the point where the public gets nervous. Because I'm actually not sure what the criterion is for a public getting nervous. All right, Douglas. Voting such, voting to demonstrate that they're nervous, would be the first place to start. Um, 
in my own country, I, mean, I, I don't want to give advice to the EU since we're going to leave it quite soon, probably. Um, and if we don't, that's not a victory for anyone who's in favour of the EU. Make it a hotel you can never check out of. Yeah. It would not be a great demonstration of democracy in itself, sure. so I wouldn't wish for that one. But um, in Britain, it was, it was a very clear moment, moment when this happened, I would say, which was uh, from Maastricht onwards. It was always a de debated issue whether we in Britain wanted to be in the common market and in the EU. But the moment that this ever closer union thing came in, that's when, I can just tell you from personal experience, that's when the EU started to lose us. I know so many people who had such uh, good feeling towards the EU, were so involved in the process, and from the moment it became ever closer union, it became something that you started to lose the public over in my country. And again... It's not just in Britain. It's not just these difficult Brits. When people in other countries... I mean, let me give you one very quick example. There's a new party in the Netherlands started up two years ago uh, by a young um, uh, Dutchman. Uh, they are probably the most Eurosceptic party in the Netherlands, OK? A, a poll on, that published on Sunday showed that that party that's existed for two years is coming either first or second place in the upcoming EU elections for the Netherlands. So instead of... Gosh, it's those damn Brits and those damn Eastern Europeans and the damn Italians and the damn Dutch and the, until you're just on your own. Why don't people just think when the public is... It's, it's not also as if when the public vote, what else do we expect them to do? Voting is the only peaceful mechanism we have as people to say, whoa, and when the public do it, they get insulted and attacked no. for voting it wrong. No. And I just think that people should listen to the public, or at least, look, how about this? Consider the public aren't on to nothing. Mm -hmm. All right, Radek. Well, first of all, uh, let me reassure you that uh, those of us on this side respect the uh, views of the 2% of the British people who, who made the difference and uh, uh, decided that Britain uh, should leave the European Union. And yes, you should leave. Uh, because we don't want to hear for the next 30 years how the uh, view, how the, the will of the British people was uh, thwarted by faceless uh, uh, elites in Brussels. Um, so yes, you should have your nationalist experiment and leave. But don't complain about insults because uh, the amount of insults at the EU that you hear uh, in Britain, you know, let me just remind you, your cabinet ministers have compared the European Union to the Soviet Union. How many corpses is Brussels uh, responsible for? At the time of the referendum I, I campaigned in Britain, um, people were saying that uh, the Brexit will be like cutting yourself from the corpse. We were the corpse. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of insults on both sides. So let's, that's not the issue. I understand you don't like the EU as it currently is, but you have not made a single positive proposal. If you think the European Union is, is not democratic enough, and I disagree, because in, in, if you live in Britain, you actually cannot learn from the British press, and particularly from the spectator, I'm sorry, for which I used to risk my life for in Afghanistan in the 1980s. You cannot learn how the EU directive is actually agreed. You cannot learn that it is agreed by um, the member states in a trialogue with the European uh, um, institutions and a democratically elected European Parliament, that at the, Fed, at the sort of quasi-federal level, 
I don't see how you can make it any more democratic. And that the European Parliament, um, which is democratically elected, now uh, uh, affirms the Commission, the budget, and ratifies treaties. How much more democratic can you make it? Most procedures are either by double majority or by unanimity. That's more democratic than our national democracies, where a simple majority is enough. Um, but that's not true. Yes, it okay. is true, actually. We have majority voting on most issues now, and that's the pro- one no, of the double problems. majority, not a simple majority. But right. still, we will go more and more in the direction of uh, majority voting. That is a clear direction taken by okay. the European point, Union. Points made. Sir. Uh, my name is Imre, and I have a question for the proposition. See? Um, I, I actually am a big supporter of the European project, but I often find myself criticizing more side, my side more than the opposition. And one of the central points is this question of identity. And we talk a lot today about facts versus feelings, but the fact is that identity very often rests on feeling. And so the first one of my question is, what is the feeling that we are going to base a future European identity on? And second, even more importantly, what is it that distinguishes Europe? What is it that makes Europe exceptional? What is it that gives this identity a basis that we can work with in the future? All right, thanks. Uh, there was can, this... Can I take it up? Because I think the question of identity you, is a very important yes, one. Yes, but do it compact. Because, because I think the nationalist side have, uh, uh, um, have this cornered. Uh, George Orwell, in his review of Mein Kampf, already uh, uh, said that uh, liberalism's values are tepid Mm -hmm. and nationalist values are hot and because there's so much history behind it, okay? And I also agree that for pan-European politics, you have to have a sense of pan-European community because only then can you have the kind of compromises and sacrifices that you need in in a democracy, uh, and by the way, you know, we are getting the cohesion funds, for example, because people are, people are making those sacrifices, even though, though there isn't yet a European identity. But Switzerland is an excellent example of a country which has created a political identity despite different languages and different ethnicities. And religions. Mm-hmm. And religions. So it is actually possible to do over time if, if, if everybody benefits, of course. Yeah. No, actually, Swiss national identity, I'm told, is actually very recent. Until recently, most people regarded themselves as belonging to their cantons. And as a real Swiss, it's what, 100 years? 150. 150. Okay. So, yes, it's a very slow process. Um, but... Uh, we will not, uh, but I would argue that we would benefit because of the of the size that we need to uh, to stand up to uh, the challenges that the challenges that we face. Okay, thanks. Point made. The uh, gentleman in the white shirt, please. Is national self determination outside of ever closer union a delusion? The Swiss people voted to have a clause in their constitution that introduced quotas for migrants, but that has not occurred, um, and the, uh, the Swiss federal government and the EU institutions have ensured that that doesn't happen. So is uh, national self-determination outside of ever closer union a delusion? Okay, next question. Uh, can I invite the panel to describe how they think things the will develop? Panel, please. 
Oh, well, Mr. Murray in particular. Yeah. Um, how things will develop in Europe over the long term if all of us were to follow the British example to leave the European Union, in other words, to do away, the, away with the European Union, how do you think this will turn out over the longer term? Would that be a good development for Europe or a bad development? Thank you. Okay. Who wants to start? I can take on Flavia. the question yes. there. Thank you so much. Um, I would say, you know, I mean, of course we have direct democracy, but it doesn't mean that we don't have all the rest of a democracy, like the representative part. And so the job of a parliament is to actually take an initiative which was accepted by the Swiss people and to adapt it to the laws and to respect, like, respect all the other interests of Switzerland, the other contracts we have. And that's what the parliament did in Switzerland. They tried to find a way to get the two things together, basically. Mm -hmm. I can take the question of the, uh, of the gentleman uh, who, sp ah. who spoke last. Um, uh, on the nationalist logic, of course, the European Union would never have been created. Because if only short-term national interests count, then how can you create something that, uh, that implies the pooling of sovereignty? Even if we take uh, Mrs. Rubinska's um, minimum standard, that the, the, the core of the union and the only thing that is useful is the single market. You cannot have a single market without some pooling of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Because for a sing single market is not just a customs union. Single market is a complete legal uh, equality of regulation to do with goods and services. And for that to happen, you, uh, you sign treaties, uh, but member states always cheat, remember. So there has to be a central resolution authority which will adjudicate who has cheated and who has not. Okay? If... I mean, we have to agree with this, that without a, um, a court, I mean, EFTA has court, WTO has a court, the, the EU also has a court. Um, so you need a court and you need a commission, a civil service, that administers these rules. And they have to be supranational because no one nation state will, will um, submit themselves to the rules of another nation state, Right. Therefore, some pooling of sovereignty is absolutely necessary for the EU to exist at all. And then, of course, how wide that should be, my, my standard is very simple. Only when it benefits everybody. Well, but that is okay. the key problem, isn't yeah. it? Because on the one hand, we have EU regulations concerning Nord Stream 2. Well, that wouldn't work out too well. And on the other hand, we have um, the procedure, Article 7 procedure against Poland. So you do have the impression, at least we do in Eastern Europe, that there are double standards in the European Union. No, it's not and a double standard. And when um, the European Commission didn't allow for the uh, founding of this big industrial champion, because this is the new idea of France and Germany, and the fusion of Alstom and Siemens, so Germany and France went, out, oh, then we're going to change the competition rules. Mm -hmm. We don't have that power. We are the smaller countries. So um, who is this European Union actually serving? I mean, who is... Is it, as you just said yourself. So the question is, it's not only not sticking to the rules, it's creating the rules as you go. Yes, of course, because if we change competition rules because they don't allow for us to do certain things that are good for our economy. So there's always a national interest behind it. We can pretend that this is a, a community of shared values and equal countries, but, you know, I'm, I'm realist. I mean, the reality is it isn't. 
Okay. It isn't. Okay. There's uh, power right. politics behind this. I actually worked in the European yeah. Council for seven years, so if I may just straighten you on the facts. Um, Poland has a 7% shareholding in this business that is called the European Union. Germany has 20. Britain used to have, well, still has technically 14. Um, uh, by Britain leaving, the Germans are going to get 5% more. So the, the German dominance of the EU is actually going to be stronger. For any decision in the EU, of course, you need a majority. And of course, it's easier to get a majority if you're bigger. Germany and France are bigger. Germany does not have a controlling majority, doesn't even have a blocking majority. But to get anything done or, or anything blocked, you need friends and allies in the European Union, which is not what our government has recently been doing, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Um, um, very quickly, I'll try to answer the, the, the gentleman there. He asked again, I, I, I stress, I, I, the last thing I'd want to do is to come to Berlin and try to tell you what I think should happen uh, in the coming years of the EU. But I did say in my original remarks, I, I don't want it to fall apart. If it works for you, I hope it works very well. If it works for all of our other friends and partners across Europe, I hope it works very well. And it's up to you to make a go of that, as it is up to Britain to make a go of the situation we're in at the moment. But I'm struck by the fact that, I mean, I, I haven't made tonight some tub-thumping argument in favour of nationalism, because I'm not a tub-thumping nationalist. But it does always strike me in debates about the EU, the zealotry, the, 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 I don't want to use the word extremism, but something just south of it, of people who push for this ever closer union project. Um, and it worries me, I have to say. And when uh, Radek Sikorsky says that uh, about the creation of a European army, that if you, if you win against your enemies, you become a society, it makes me worry about what exactly people have got in mind down the road. And I just finished by making one, one point about this. You know, as I said, we in Britain made a choice, and you can love it, hate it, or feel very mixed about it, as most of us do. But let me just say this one thing. There was a, there's a now late socialist politician in the UK called Tony Benn, who I never quote, or at least never quote admirably, uh, who used to claim that there were five questions he always asked people if they had power. He said, what power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interests do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? And I cite this because actually Tony Benn, when he did meet dictators, tended just to be really chummy with them. But, but that aside, this question, how can we... How, how, who are you accountable to and how can we make ourselves heard to you was something that we simply started to think we no longer got the answers we wanted. And if you do, and if others across Europe feel that you do know where the power is and how you can make yourselves heard, then, then I, at any rate, wish you luck. But to claim that, uh, that to get back to the final point, is to claim that this, all the basis of all this that we're discussing tonight means that nation states are a delusion and that anyone feels pride in the nation state is suffering from a mental oh, illness is really right. okay. crazy. Thank you. Flavia. Well... If we look at the European elections in May, I want to say that even if it would raise up nationalists in a big number, this is for sure not the downfall of the European Union. Um, and I know that what it means to have many nationalists in your parliament, because in Switzerland they are at 30% and the biggest party. So you can handle this. And even if they have this tool of the popular initiatives and they use it successfully as a campaigning tool in Switzerland. What worries me more, actually, is that as we have tonight here, two very distinguished thinkers, uh, 
uh, who basically don't come up with solutions, but with a lot of criticism. And I wonder where this is bringing us to. I also know that political leadership is a problem in the European Union, but where are we going with this? And then I want to just come back on the point that Ms. Rubinska made uh, on Germany and France as being like a bigger power in the European <coughs> Union. I just wonder and come back to my point, what other organization of power, what other can you imagine where Germany and France wouldn't be as powerful as they are? I would argue that actually it's better to have institutions where you're collaborating in, in a structured way, than not to have uh, institutions. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Alexandra. I will maybe re respond to Flavia uh, straight away. Well, you used to have uh, an unanimity in uh, voting in the European Council to um, avoid situations where uh, smaller countries or weaker countries are basically overruled, right? And because this is eroding little by little, which is done on purpose, to, you can be certain about that, um, we will see um, more and more of a domination of those stronger countries, which will have an easier majority than everybody else. And um, as to respond to, to Radek Sikorsky, well, you know, uh, you can always say the current government doesn't, doesn't have many friends in Europe and, and has difficulty forming alliances, but the whole campaign of the Polish opposition is actually based on the fact that we are not going to say no to you, ever. You are saying no all the time, we're going to say yes all the time. I would like to see and practice... When Germany and France come, I would like to see you say no to anything they propose after the campaign you've built. Marek, you're the last in this row. To, uh, to, 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 to go back to the core of the issue, uh, I think is this. Um, I agree with Douglas that uh, a, a useful definition of patriotism is this uh, aggregate we. And um, the United States started thinking about themselves as we only about 60, 70 years into the creation of the United States. And I can think of myself as a, I'm a, I'm a Polish patriot. I, I think nation states are here to stay as member states, as building blocks. I hope of something bigger. And as a Pole, I also have interests that my nation states cannot realize for me because it is too weak, because size matters in politics. The United States is a $15 trillion economy. China is a $15 trillion economy. We are a half-trillion-dollar economy. And even Germany is only a $4 trillion economy. Poland or Germany cannot give its citizens what they need in this world. And I've given you some examples already. And the question is how to build something that will give us European, that will maximize our influence in the world without compromising on democracy. Uh, I mean, in politics, we, we, in Poland, we, we often have this dilemma, and some parties have it uh, now in election year. Do you have total control over a, uh, an ant, or do you have a, the, the leg of, a, of an elephant? Well, I'd rather for my country to be an influential um, state in a grouping that matters in the world, rather than being... Uh, manipulated by Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump uh, as, and played around as, uh, as disaggregated Europeans. Um, I rest my case. All right. Thank you very much.
And I, I think your applause is in order to all four speakers. Uh, let me recall, before we discussed, 68% of you said yes. We, I agree with the motion. Uh, and 19% said no. Um, and the undecided were 13. After the debate, the number of undecided has gone up. <laughs> so, so, plus 3% for the undecided. The number of those who say yes has gone down by 10 percentage points. So now 58% say uh, agree. They agree with the motion. Yeah. And before, 19% said no. And the no, you have basically doubled your result. No? Now, 37%, 37% say no. Okay, thanks very much to the speakers. Rousing applause to the speakers.